Welcome to the Vita Foods Insights Podcast. Join us as we explore the latest in science and innovation, helping the global health and nutrition industry connect, develop, and progress. Today's host is Marion Schumacher, Content Manager. Welcome to a podcast for the Vita Foods Digital Week. With this, we are connecting the global nutraceutical supply chain. Um, as you know, Vita Foods was moved to September, and with this, we are delivering the latest content that you would also get at the show. Um, I am today. I'm joined by Elizabeth Candelario and Eric Binsleff. Um, they are from America World, and they will help me understand um, the sustainability challenges that we're currently facing. The nutraceutical industry is in a phase where this is becoming increasingly important for most companies, not only because consumers are paying more and more attention to where their products come from and if they are sustainably sourced, but um, more and more companies are making this part of their own initiative and a priority. So, Elizabeth and Eric, thank you so much for joining me and for giving us a little bit of an overview of um, what the challenges are and how we can best face them. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting us, Marianne. A pleasure. Um, well, let's just delve right into this. Um, I think one of the one of the most important things is what what are the current um, sustainability challenges that we're having, especially when we're looking at the nutraceutical um, industry and the food and beverage industry in comparison? How do these uh, two compare and where do you see the differences? Well, I will, um, I will start. Um, I think um, there are many comparisons. At the end of the day, we are many times sourcing um, ingredients um, from the same areas and from the same commodity groups. Um, I think there are two main challenges that are greatly shared. One has to do with sourcing. With the emergence of uh, the climate reality or climate change reality, you're going to see uh, growing conditions around the world suffering from these extreme climatic changes and fluctuations. We are already seeing uh, an increasing um, um, uh, extent of drought. We're seeing soil conditions um, being uh, depleted, um, which has a huge effect in turn on, on, the, on the production of those, those growing areas. So that's one, securing the crops and the raw materials. I think both, both the food industry and the nutraceutical industry are facing a, a big, big uh, challenge there. The secondly, I'll, I'll touch on the fact that you have uh, a, a, a big proportion of the uh, input into the nutraceutical and the, and the food industry coming from wild sources. And as we all know, the ecosystems of the world are rapidly depleting. Um, as, an, as an example, I know that the krill population in the polar region has dropped up to 80% since the 1970s. And with this, um, this means that the ecosystems around them, being a keystone species, are collapsing. And that in turn will have a huge um, effect and probably already has ha have a huge effect, not only on pricing, but overall supply when it comes to things like omegas um, and other things that come from the from marine life. And also, 
you know, as a, as a, as a side comment, I think we have been driving like extractive method um, to the way that we run our business models. And we have to realize that we have to go towards a more regenerative one um, because the regenerative builds natural resilience, not only in nature um, and supply, but in our overall business model. Um, and then a little um, thing I've thought about also, if you look at the channel approach, um, we are right now with um, uh, in a mist where we're seeing mass retail distribution, and that takes a lot of scale um, because we've been very good at being efficient in distribution networks uh, to mass retail distribution. Um, many companies in the food industry and also in the nutraceutical industry uh, as a whole are seeing a new um, delivery methods or new distribution methods. Uh, online is one that obviously have been booming since we can't move. Um, many, many parts of the world can't move because of the COVID crisis. But we're just going to see um, more business being driven towards e-commerce. And that, again, allows for smaller batches, uh, more smart delivery, um, sub-segmentation of markets, et cetera, et cetera, which not necessarily um, requires the scale and the supply that the old model has. So there are a lot of similarities and common challenges between the nutraceutical industry and food and beverage, but there's also some significant differences. And, and I think some differences that make it especially challenging for nutraceuticals. One is that there seems to be a lot more uh, possibility of fraud. And that certainly is a topic that's coming up more and more. The sourcing of raw materials internationally can be very problematic. Countries, um, there's countries that are notorious for adulterated ingredients, subpar processing methods, not to mention human rights abuses. The other, another thing is that there's a lot less transparency sometimes in the origin of ingredients. I mean, when a, when a food manufacturer buys their ingredients, it, I think it's easier for them to go back, to trace back to source. But maybe ashwagandha is a good example where you have a, a raw material that's actually starting to be manufactured synthetically and can actually be processed in big vats of GMO yeast. So if a brand is, is out there sourcing ashwagandha, how do they know for sure? if it's real or synthetic or how it's been processed. I also think there's, you know, there's a lot less transparency in terms of how ingredients are produced. Um, or put another way, it's easier for the food industry to get back through the supply chain to the farmer and have some assurance about that. An example I can give you in nutraceuticals is collagen sales, you know, that have increased 30% a year. But, you know, there's not enough grass-fed beef to produce that collagen. So a lot of that collagen is coming out of CAFOs. And I think if consumers knew that, that would be a real source of concern. Do ingredients carry pesticide residue? That's another big question, you know, and that, that is shared also with, uh, with the food industry, but I think especially um, with nutraceuticals as producers are moving off glyphosate, they're also moving to Dicamba and other uh, um, really bad synthetic uh, um, pesticides and herbicides. And then, of course, the use of excipients is, is unique to nutraceuticals. Um, you don't use those in the natural food industry, but because there aren't uh, organic capsules, at least I know that's true in the U.S., available, 
the need to make tablets with excipients adds a whole other layer of complexity to product manufacturing that doesn't exist in food. Thank you so much for the overview of what we can see as the differences between food and beverage and the nutraceutical industry. Now, I would like to shift our attention towards the current um, global pandemic that we are seeing and um, for us to discuss what the challenges are that are coming out of this pandemic. Um, Eric and Elizabeth, what are the, the ramifications and the complications that you have seen regarding um, the supply chain of ingredients? Well, you know, you, first of all, you, you're having problems with major ingredient providers. For example, China's coming back online now, but there are manufacturers anticipating long production and transportation delays. India has shut down manufacturing and transportation nationwide with firms reporting difficulties sourcing turmeric, ashwagandha, other botanicals. Europe has had problems of its own with bovine collagen, echinacea, black elderberry. And there's also impacts to the supply chain. I mean, the transportation costs have increased. There's unpredictability and delays in production and testing at laboratories. And I think also we have to um, look at what is the, the broader long-term ratification of this is um, with new technologies and new uh, ways of sourcing and manufacturing products, everything can be done closer to home. And I will say that transition is being moved forward because of the COVID-19. Um, beyond that, I think the supplement industry right now, we're seeing a lot of, in, in global and historical term, quite a lot of political instability, quite a lot of macroeconomic and uh, national economic instability. And that has its challenges when it comes to um, um, to the to the sourcing and the way that you manufacture and distribute products. Um, and interestingly, I think back to the original question about COVID-19, interestingly, SPINS data shows in the past two months, the sales of uh, supplements have exploded in the US. Um, and mostly that comes from the say, the mass channel, not necessarily the specific and niche channels of natural organic. As an example, we have 13,000% increase in vitamins and supplements, 18,000% increase in amino acid sales, 4,000% digestive enzyme sales, and 3,200% increase in food supplements. And again, this is not just a really small example. This is spin data from across the US, from mass channel, natural organic channel, and health channel. So that alone tells you the ramification on nutraceutical industry has been massive. Um, and that means that people are thinking a lot more about health, a lot more about their family's health. Um, and also, they, they are trying to boost immunity, everything from immunity to uh, to um, to overall um, health. Thank you very much for that that overview. Um, I think another factor that will impact supplement brands quite heavily over the next ten years is climate change. Um, how do you think that will impact um, brands across the nutraceutical space? That may be the most important question of all, and I would emphasize that climate change isn't something down the road; it's happening now. Brands really need to get more focused on where they're sourcing their raw materials. 
and they need to take responsibility for how their ingredients are grown and processed. Does agriculture, where they're sourcing their raw materials, does the agriculture pay attention to soil health, water conservation, biodiversity, food and ingredient quality? I mean, to deal with a warming planet, we not only need to stop putting excess carbon into the atmosphere, we need to pull it out of the air and put it back into the soil where it belongs. You know, increased soil carbon, by definition, is increased soil fertility. So when we increase, for example, when we increase the organic matter in soil by just 1%, we increase its ability to capture and retain water by 30,000 gallons per acre. Soil conservation is water conservation, absolutely. And increased soil health and vitality means that the food and the raw materials that we harvest from it is healthier, and it means that our planet is healthier. So first of all, brands have to realize that their brand health is directly tied to the health of the planet and have to do everything they can to source ingredients from planet-friendly ecological farming. And I'll add to that because if you, as climate change is presenting a massive fluctuation, weather patterns, crop yields um, will be greatly affected and a great emphasis on the delivery of food and nutrition will then occur. And I think what we're going to see is the food prices, raw material prices will inevitably need to rise. This means that budgets are going to be strained, consumers are going to spend less on food, and they'll be looking for a smarter way to cover the basics, i.e. nutrition. And this represents, I think, um, for parts of the nutraceutical industry, a, a great opportunity. Um, because if there's anything the nutraceutical industry and supplements industry can do is deliver smart, functional um, uh, solutions for gaps in nutrition. Um, so that's a great, I would say, positive takeout. But um, we have to look at, and this goes back to the supply chain issue, that the natural world is, is about to be depleted for raw materials. And the resilience... Um, uh, of the natural world means the resilience of, of the economy and the lives that we live. So we, we will see a future where we will see a transition period. We will see great efforts be made to create a resilience in the agricultural system, so in the soil production system. But we will also see the rise of hydroponics and vast complexes for lab production of ingredients. And that again goes to the point of having the production and the sourcing raw materials closer to home. It will be possible in the future to have, um, you know, maybe more hubs of raw materials and less reliance on big, vast um, global supply chains. And then lastly, the circular models um, for waste materials to be used, not only in packaging, but also in the, the, the product manufacturing itself. So we're gonna see a re, rethinking and a repurposing of everything from packaging to discarded waste. And that again will be reused and repurposed for, for other means. So again, that means that the nutraceutical industry, the ones that are on the forefront of this change will be the first one to capture these new marketplaces and secure the supply that it brings. Interesting. Elizabeth, what, um, what else can brands and companies do on a sourcing um, and supply chain level to positively impact on climate change? I'll answer that question by telling a story 
when I was president of Demeter USA, the nonprofit certifier of biodynamic farms and products, I had the distinct pleasure of working with an organ a company called Dr. Mercola that has a huge online presence in the United States. Uh, it's an educational platform and they sell grocery items and they sell nutraceuticals and vitamins supplements. And they became quite enamored of biodynamic a few years ago and were convinced that product quality uh, in order to increase their product quality, they really wanted to start sourcing uh, biodynamic raw materials and bringing biodynamic products to market. So we started working with them, I believe, about five years ago. And the challenge was that there wasn't like there was thousands of pounds of biodynamic raw materials laying around on farms in the United States and around the world. And so they had to work really hard uh, with finding existing biodynamic ingredients, working with farms that weren't certified to move them into certification so that they could provide the raw material, working with their processors to get the, la the processing facility certified, working with the manufacturers to get the manufacturer certified. And um, today they have 22 uh, biodynamic products in the market, which is a huge accomplishment. But it's really important because because of their commitment, they are probably responsible for moving thousands of acres of uh, agricultural land into biodynamic production, not to mention that they're delivering to their customers really highly efficacious products. Eric, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I think overall, I think um, what we are looking at at the moment. I've 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 also worked. Um, we work as venture partners for for big investment firms. And what is important to note here is that increasingly, and it is becoming common knowledge, that climate change um, basically is affecting uh, the company's overall value. And climate change as a risk factor is now in the top three, three um, most, most important um, external risks when it comes to companies and brand survival. Um, so not only do you have to um, hedge that risk on the financial side, but you, the risk mitigation that you have to, to build within the company to build that resilience is equally important. And I think from the food industry, there are great examples of how global conglomerates, you know, we're talking, you know, 20 billion euro companies, 50 billion euro companies like Danone, Unilever, Nestle, they're all beginning to, show, you know, systematically build in resilience um, throughout the company, uh, supply chain by supply chain, brand by brand. And they're doing that not necessarily because the consumers expect it. In fact, they're doing it because it's needed for their, their basic survival. So moving away from fossil fuel-based solution to more regenerative solutions um, can help companies, both in the nutraceutical industry as well as in the food industry, to um, lower their risk and therefore increase their chance of profitability and ongoing survival. 
Interesting. What I think what most of the brands or or the audience that is listening will be interested in is also um, how can um, companies integrate sustainability into their overall value proposition to align with where the current customer demand is shifting um, and also build trust and transparency? Well, there's no doubt that consumers are saying that environment is their major reason for purchasing sustainable products. Um, more than half of Gen, of Gen Z, the millennials, Gen Xers make food and beverage decisions in part based on the brand's commitment to sustainability. So for the, for the listeners of this podcast, I would say a really great example is Megafood. And I would encourage your listeners to go to their website because they provide a really great case study about how companies can integrate sustainability into their value chain proposition. Um, They source over 700,000 pounds of fresh vegetables, fruits, and whole grains directly from their farm partners. They love their farmers so much that they feature them on their website. Their tagline is fresh farm to tablet, which I love. They have multiple certifications, uh, including B Corp, organic, gluten-free, vegan, kosher, non-GMO, and more. And they do a great job aligning with consumer concerns uh, with a focus on transparency and trust. Eric, do you want to add to this? Yeah, I think I would like to um, emphasize my previous point, which is in order to integrate sustainability into your brand and into your corporation, you have to look beyond the consumer um, because often the consumers are the last one that really demands it in a major way. You should actually look at your entire business model and really look at the risk factors involved for ignoring this. So this is about corporate survival. When we work with clients at America, we need often to change the entire mindset and the culture of the organizations we work with. Um, I think fundamentally this company in this sector, and that goes for the broader food industry as well as the nutraceutical industry, you need to look at sustainability initiatives, not as an expense, but as an investment that will have a strong long-term return derived from a healthy and more resilient business model. Thank you very much for this um, inspirational quote. I think it's very important to look at sustainability as um, as an investment overall rather than an expense and look at it also um, from a long-term perspective and not um, at short-term gains. Um, so with this quote, um, I think we should be closing our podcast. Thank you so much, Elizabeth and Eric, for giving us an overview of not only the challenges that we're facing when it comes to sustainability at the moment, but also some of the opportunities and what brands really can do to leave their mark, uh, to have a positive impact on climate change and, um, and also gain some more trust with consumers. Thank you very much, Marianne. Thanks for having us.